Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Well, good morning, everyone, and it is an honor and a delight uh, to deliver the faculty lecture, and I thought we would have just a little bit of fun uh, with the topic as I want to speak to you about flat around lessons from a sixth century debate. Um, I'm nearly not going to uh, talk so much about the modern flat earth movement. I just really have a hard time taking it very seriously. I really think that what we have is a bunch of skeptics trolling a few naive people. Uh, But there are certain lessons to be learned by a very serious debate that happened in the sixth century. And I think it really will inform us on how to understand the doctrine of creation. Uh, The debate during the early church uh, was not uh, between young earth and old earth. In fact, uh, neither was the debate during the early centuries of the church between uh, creation and Darwinism. No, uh, in the early days of the church, uh, it was centered on the question of creation versus eternalism. Uh, There were two slogans. The pagan philosophers uh, argued for ex nihilo nihil fit, out of nothing comes nothing. In other words, what they were saying is what is always has been and always will be. This would be the notion that the earth has been here forever and will be here forever. In contrast to that, uh, the early church fathers argued for creatio ex nihilo, that is creation out of nothing. They argued that the earth has been here for a finite uh, period of time, uh, and so therefore it has had a beginning, it has experienced a fall, uh, there is redemption, and there will be an eschatological uh, consummation. So you could see the debate was over two very different world views. And I think that um, what happens, uh, the little sideshow that starts, that uh, just a bizarre twist that happens in the sixth century, uh, there are some lessons to be learned from it. And that, those are the lessons uh, that I want to get across to you this morning. First, it's very easy to get sidetracked. I mean, the main question, eternal versus creation, can be lost to debates that really do miss the point, uh, flat earth versus round earth. Uh, It also teaches us and reminds us of the distinction between creation and creationism. Creation is a theological doctrine. Creationism is an apologetic approach, and I suspect that many confuse the two, even those who are very much involved in the conversation. There is an ironic historical lesson to be learned from this also. In the 17th century, uh, the Roman Catholic Church is going to defend the Ptolemaic system against Galileo. The irony of this is that a thousand years earlier, in the 6th century, The situation was 180 degrees different, the opposite. Then the question was whether or not Christians should embrace the Ptolemaic system. And what, it's it's a cliche, it's a truism, it's a tautology, but it really is important to know what is truly important. It also operates as a precursor of things to come. 
Uh, it really, the, the debate of the sixth century really does operate as a foretaste of the disagreements between the various creationist groups today. But it, there's an optimistic thing about this too. It is a template for the way forward. It presents a template for acceptance of a creationist theory by a scientific uh, community. What, what needs to happen? Well, it's when a particular theory makes a contribution to the body of scientific knowledge or when it demonstrates great explanatory power. Well, I'll, I'll explain those points as we go along later in the lecture. First, let's look at the debate itself. It starts with the Neoplatonic attack against the doctrine of creation. Now, you've got to remember, Neoplatonism incorporates two significant Aristotelian notions. Uh, it, it, uh, it incorporates Aristotelian physics with the notion of Aristotelian eternalism. Like I said, Neoplatonism, as it developed into a distinct and predominant philosophy in the early centuries of the church, incorporated much of Aristotle's physics, including his arguments that the world had no beginning. Plotinus does uh, accept the notion that God created, but it's an eternal generation, much in the way uh, that uh, Christian theologians would affirm the eternal generation of the Son. And so uh, the Neoplatonic uh, Platonic philosophers argued for an eternal universe. Uh, the second thing is uh, the Ptolemaic cosmology. You see, the pagan Neoplatonists will appeal to the features of Ptolemy's system to argue for eternalism. Now, Claudius Ptolemy was a second century uh, astronomer, and he presents or presented a comprehensive geocentric model of the universe in his work, The Algamus. You see uh, a picture there on the screen. The earth is in the center. Notice the earth is round. And then there are concentric spheres on which the various planets and the sun are embedded in those spheres. And the outermost sphere uh, is where the stars are. Uh, this will be the authoritative work of the Middle Ages. And so um, these two features are going to uh, feature very uh, prominently in this debate. So what was the debate between the Neoplatonic and Christian philosophers? We have Proclus, a 5th century uh, Neoplatonist pagan, who writes a book called On the Eternity of the World. In it, he gives 18 arguments against the Christian doctrine of creation. And he argues for an eternal universe. Uh, he derives his arguments from Aristotelian physics. And here are a few examples of what he argues. First, he argued that all motion on earth is the result of the four elements seeking their respective places. You've got to remember, Aristotle said that this mundane world in which we reside, it's made up of four basic elements. Earth, water, air, fire, and each element possesses its distinct nature and its corresponding density. Now, what Aristotle does is that he presents each of the elements in almost psychological terms. Each, each element desires and seeks its proper place. So movement is explained in psychological terms. Motion results when the elements attempt to return to their respective natural or proper places. Earth is densest, so it goes down to the center. Fire is lightest, so it rises. So therefore, all motion in the Aristotelian system is explained vertically, up and down, 
And this sorting of the elements are their attempts to arrive at their respective natural levels. Well, what about the heavens? Well, the celestial sky is made up of something else, a fifth element, quintessence. That's where we get our word, quintessential, quint, five, essence. Or sometimes they called it the ether. And they said that this is perfect and everlasting. If you'll notice, celestial motion, they said, is not vertical, it's circular. Uh, and they, the reason why the motion is different is because the quintessence already resides at its proper level. And since the heavens are made up of the fifth element, well, then that, doesn't, that means there's no fire up there. Remember, that's the fourth element. Well, that would mean that the sun does not consist of fire, nor does it contain heat. Uh, that's a little tough. Uh, the stars and the sun, they, Aristotle argued, it couldn't be made up of fire, or else they'd already burned up. Well, Aristotle, then why is the sun so hot? Well, he claimed that that was the result of friction caused by the revolving motion of the spheres. And so he, they then argued that the circular nature of the orbits of the spheres demonstrates their eternal nature since a circle has no beginning or end. Hence, they concluded and argued the earth and the universe is eternal. Well, <clears throat> that's the pagan argument. Uh, John Philoponus was a philosopher of the 5th or 6th century, uh, and he was a Christian who studied in the academy, and he wrote as a philosopher to the philosophers. In his early works, um, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't appeal to scripture or any kind of religious authority. It is a strictly an academic work. And so he writes a book called Against Proclus on the Eternity of the World. And so he answers the pagans on their own terms. In other words, like I said, he's, he's not writing, um, he doesn't appeal to Genesis, he doesn't appeal to the doctrine of creation. What he does is that he defends the Christian doctrine of creation in strictly natural or philosophical terms. Now, in so doing, he sets a revolution in motion. Historians of science view Philoponus as a man ahead of his time and view him as sowing the seeds of the scientific revolution because he begins the process of dismantling Aristotelian physics. And he establishes a unified understanding of the principles of dynamics. Now, both things are necessary for the formation of modern science. That is why Thomas Kuhn will credit Philoponus and his theory of impetus as a paradynamic scientific revolution. In fact, when Galileo and Newton, especially Galileo, will actually establish the scientific revolution a thousand years later, Galileo will rely heavily on Philoponus. He will cite him more often than anyone else, more often than Plato, more often than Albertus or Duns Scotus. So <clears throat> you have Proclus writing his book. Philoponus writing against him. Uh, Simplicius of Cilicia will then write against uh, Philoponus. In fact, the name of his book is Against Philoponus on the Eternity of the World. They were classmates at the academy. You have to wonder what their, you know, school reunion was like. Um, Simplicius was the last of the great play, uh, pagan philosophers. And like I said, both were tra trained at the academy. 
As historians note, the severe and extensive way in which Simplicius responds indicates that Philoponus had struck a nerve. Now, what were Philoponus's arguments? What, what did he argue? Well, some of his replies uh, to Aristotle and the Aristotelian physics were pretty easy, pretty quick and easy. So let me just give you uh, three uh, examples. Uh, to the claim that the circular nature of the orbits demonstrated their eternal nature. Um, remember Aristotle argued that. He said, since a circle has no beginning uh, or end, uh, it demonstrates its eternality. Philoponus replied that in this regard, the characteristics of a circle are no different from that of a straight line, since a straight line on the Euclidean plane also has no beginning or end. Uh, to the claim that the heavens are made up of a fifth element, Remember, Aristotle argued that it's made up of the ether or the quintessence and that the sun did not consist of fire as a result, nor did it contain heat. Well, Philoponus answered back, first off, just because the celestial bodies haven't burned up yet doesn't mean they never will. And he said, you know, the reason why we don't feel the heat from the stars could be because they are so far away. And he said, if the heavens have had a beginning, then it's possible for them also to have an end. And if the heavens are perishable, then there's no need to believe that they're made up of a fifth element. And if, it's not, if the heavens are not made up of a fifth element, then the heavens are made up of the same elements as that we find here on earth. And so therefore, the same principles of motion apply to both. Now that seems so obvious to us in this modern world. It's Philoponus who started the ball rolling in that direction. The next thing he does is that he shows the inherent contradictions of Aristotle's argument. You see, Philoponus's key insight is that he saw that Aristotle's two main arguments for eternal earth contain inherent contradictions. You see, <clears throat> eternalism contradicts Aristotle's rejection of an actual infinite in the physical realm. Now think about it for a second. An eternal cosmos requires infinite time and infinite motion. Yet according to Aristotle's own logic, Aristotle himself argued strongly that both are impossible. Aristotle had rejected the possibility that there can be an actual infinite in the physical world due to the paradoxes and the logical contradictions that would result. Namely, when you add a finite number to infinity, it results in the annihilation of the finite number. I mean, think about it a second. What's infinity plus one? Infinity. What's infinity plus 100? Infinity. Take the largest finite number you can think of, you know, uh, uh, it, infinity plus 100 trillion. Infinity. What happened to all the finite numbers? They're just annihilated. And so therefore, uh, uh, Aristotle said, you cannot have an actual infinite uh, in nature. And so he argued, uh, points out to the argument, he said, notice, an eternal cosmos requires infinite time. Philoponus pointed out that adherence to an internal cosmos assumes an infinite regress of time and therefore commits the very error that Aristotle meant to avoid. If the world were infinitely old, then every 24 hours would be the addition of a finite day to an infinitely long past. Aristotle had already proven that's this impossible, so the universe must have had a beginning. 
An eternal cosmos requires infinite motion. Philoponus exposed the fallacy of eternal revolutions of the heavens, and in so doing, he dismantles Aristotle's theory of motion altogether. In fact, <clears throat> this is where Philoponus starts to have a lot of fun. Aristotle's theory of motion fails to explain lateral motion. Think about it. In Aristotle's scheme, the four elements go up and down. It's vertical motion. Why do, in the Aristotelian system, why do objects move sideways? Think about it. If a movement is caused by the elements seeking the proper vertical level, then why does a javelin move forward when it's thrown? Well, Aristotle struggled with this. And so Aristotle was forced to posit that somehow successive pockets of air continue pushing the javelin even after it leaves the thrower's hand. Philoponus points out that if Aristotle were right, then an army would no longer need to launch projectiles at its enemies. They could simply blow behind the arrows and let the air do the rest. It's at this moment that Philoponus has a eureka moment. He has a crucial insight. He suggests that the thrower implants a force or an impetus into the javelin when he throws it. It will be this concept that Galileo and all others will further refine and turn into the concept of inertia. So what we have through Philoponus's work is the beginning of a whole new scientific paradigm. Philoponus presents a powerful case against the Neoplatonic doctrine of the eternal world, and in so doing, he discredited much of the Aristotelian physics underlying it. Historians of science see Philoponus as providing two crucial steps towards the formation of science as a discipline. First, the concept of impetus, the idea of inertia, and second, a unified understanding of dynamics, that the, the laws of nature that work down here work everywhere. That's why whenever Sir Isaac Newton <clears throat> was on his farm and he saw the apple fall and drop to the tree, uh, or drop from the tree to the ground, he was able to make that logical jump that the same force working on the apple is also working on the moon. It's the same force of gravity. How was he able to make that conceptual logical jump? because he understood there to be a unified understanding of the laws of nature, something that the ancient Greeks did not believe. Well, <clears throat> Philoponus is on a roll, man. I mean, here he, here he is answering uh, the pagans on their terms, uh, going toe-to-toe -to -toe with them. It's going just fine until he's T-boned from the other side. I mean, he's blindsided by a fellow by the name of Cosmos Indigoploestes. The strongest attacks on Philoponus do not come from the pagan philosophers, but from other Christians. A Nestorian monk who also lived in Alexandria, just like Philoponus, Cosmos Indigoploestes, he writes a rebuttal against Philoponus that rejects his work on the grounds that it accepts the notion that the earth is round. And that is a thoroughly pagan idea in Cosmos's 
estimation. Now, what were Cosmas's credentials? Well, he was a worldwide traveler, as his surname indicates. In fact, his surname, uh, Indico Ploestes, and you don't know if I'm saying that right or not, um, means Indian voyager. Cosmas was a merchant sailor before he became a monk, uh, and he traveled throughout the Indian Ocean uh, all over um, uh, uh, Africa and Sri, uh, Sri Lanka. In fact, he is also uh, to this day known as a geographer. He was unsurpassed in his day in his firsthand knowledge of the geography of the world, and historians consider him to be a premier source for information concerning 6th century customs and cultures, plant and animal life in both Africa and India. Because he not only wrote detailed descriptions, he drew lots of drawings and illustrations. Cosmos will use this eyewitness information frequently in his rejection of Philoponus's round earth. And he will write a book called Christian Topography. In it, Cosmos offers a flat earth alternative that he considers to be more in keeping with the biblical record and the physical evidence. So what does he do? Well, first, he attacks Cosmos's, or Cosmos attacks Philoponus's character and motives. He describes and denounces Philoponus uh, as a compromiser. Uh, he argues that when Philoponus accepts the Ptolemaic cosmology, he has thrown the fight even before the match begins. The pagans base their belief in an eternal universe on a spherical world, so to concede this point is to give up the debate in Cosmos' mind. And he says... Is it not evident that you argue against the hope held out by the Christian doctrine? For your views, that is of a round earth, cannot be consistently held except by pagans who have no hope for another and better state and who consequently suppose the world is eternal. Remember, it's really eternalism versus creation. That's what's the, the underlying thing here. So. Philoponus is the compromiser. He's also denounced by Cosmos as being intellectually arrogant. He warns Philoponus that his inflated view of his own intellectual abilities have caused him to attempt to do what cannot be done, and that is to reconcile pagan science and Christian beliefs. After reminding him that no one can serve two masters, Cosmos chides, how great is your knowledge? How great is your wisdom? How great your intelligence? How great your inconsistency? And Cosmos says, there is no middle ground. Now, you can do one of the two. You can either be a true Christian who accepts the biblical account of creation in a flat earth and its description of the cosmos, or you can be a pagan filled with the self-confidence of worldly wisdom who holds to a round earth. And so he says, it is against such two-faced men, my words are directed, who wish to occupy a middle position. They laugh at everyone and are themselves laughed at by all. So how does he describe the flat earth model? Cosmos argues that the heavens form a vault over the earth and that the, uni uh, the universe has the shape of a chest. You could see it's a chest-shaped universe. And therefore, the earth is flat because it serves as the floor, the bottom of uh, the cosmological chest. The he, next thing he draws is, and these are his drawings, uh, that the inhabited world is all one continent. Now, it is indented with various seas, 
And it's surrounded by an unnavigable ocean that acts as an impassable moat. Now, the four navigable gulfs are the Roman, or what today we would call the Mediterranean, the, uh, uh, the uh, Arabic, Persian, and Caspian seas. And so the ocean is held in place by an oblong ring of land making up the perimeter of the cosmos. And if you'll notice over on the far right, that east boundary, that's where paradise, that's where the Garden of Eden resides. Now, there's a great wall around the perimeter. The heavens are attached to the earth by, that great, by those great walls, and these great walls give the cosmos its rectangular shape. And there's a firmament then that separates heaven into two parts. The firmament at the top of the wall separates the heaven in two parts, which is why the Bible, he said, speaks of two heavens. And Cosmos struggles to, under, to explain why Paul talks about there being a third heaven in 2 Corinthians 12. So that's his description. What are his biblical arguments? Well, let's see his, his, his arguments. He has, gives basically two types of arguments, uh, proof text from Scripture and then his understanding of geography. Well, the proof text from Scripture, he points to the several passages that portray the heavens either as a vault, a canopy, or a tent. For example, uh, Isaiah 40 in verse 22, where it speaks of the Lord who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Uh, so he says there are places where the Bible describes it like a tent. Um, second, he says, he points out that the Bible describes the earth as having extremities, which cannot be said of a sphere. He says Jesus himself taught that Africa is the world's southernmost edge when he describes the Queen of Sheba as having come from the ends of the earth in Matthew 12, 42. And then he points out what Jesus says in Matthew 24, 31, where it says, uh, Jesus says, he will send his angels with the sound of a great trumpet and they shall gather his chosen ones, notice, from the four corners of the earth, from one end of the sky to the other. He said, you're not gonna call Jesus a liar, are you? I mean, you know, it, it, I, shouldn't we let Jesus be the final authority on these things? Uh, and so this is, is how uh, Cosmos argues. Then he argues that <clears throat> the sun travels north each night. Because you, you do have the question on the flat earth, okay, it, you know, it goes from east to west. How does it get back, you know, uh, you know, that night in the morning? Well, he says that the sun returns each night via the north. We can't see the sunlight as it returns because there's a giant northern mountain that blocks the light. And uh, there you have his drawing that illustrates you could see the sun going behind that giant mountain. And then he appeals to the Septuagint's translation of Ecclesiastes chapter 1, where it says, The sun rises and the sun goes down and draws towards its place. Arising there proceeds southward and goes around towards the north. And so that is his arguments. Well, he has, uh, again, uh, he says there can be no one living on the underside of the earth because, and this again is his famous drawing. One will find these drawings at skeptic websites, atheist websites. Uh, everyone who wants to lampoon the Christian understanding of science, they always point to Cosmos. And there was Cosmos' famous drawing about why it could not be that there are people on other sides, on the underside of the earth. Because he says in Philippians 2.10, the Bible speaks of those on the earth, that's the living, and those in the earth, that's the dead, but never under the earth. And so he lampoons the absurdity of someone living underside of the earth. 
And then he says, if you, he says, the spherical cosmology has no place for a coming kingdom of heaven. He warns that if the spherical model is right, then the pagans are, quote, justified in denying the resurrection of the body, close quote. And so he says, for the famous sphere of the pagans does not harmonize at all with what Christian doctrine proclaims. But it is adapted rather for those who hope neither for a resurrection of the dead nor for another state after it, but assert that the whole world is in an endless process of generation and corruption. And so he says, a round earth renders Noah's flood impossible, nor was it possible that the creation account of the earth originally covered in water uh, is true. So those were his, his uh, biblical arguments. But Cosmos primarily argued from firsthand knowledge acquired through his personal travels. As I said, few had traveled in his day as extensively as he had. And so he says, I have written thus with the advantage of possessing exact knowledge. And I cannot therefore have fallen much short of the truth. For the facts I am indebted partly to what I observed in the course of my voyages and travels and partly to what I learned from others on whose accuracy I could depend. And so he gives extensive uh, descriptions of, of, of the flat earth and then he concludes that the length of the earth from east to west is 12,000 miles and it's 6,000 miles wide. Well, <clears throat> he writes several additions to his book. And every time he writes an addition, he answers more and more objections. And one of the major objections he answered was about the size of the sun because the natural philosophers of that day recognized that the sun is actually much larger than the earth. And so in an appendix added to later editions, um, he answered the objection, how can the sun possibly be hidden as you hold by the northern parts of the earth, which according to you are so very high since it is many times the size of the earth? Cosmos just rejects the very premise of this, uh, uh, of this question because he believes he can prove that in fact the sun is much smaller than the earth. And so here's his drawing. He says, notice, uh, during his travels as far south as Ethiopia and far north as Asia Minor, he had noticed that on the same day of the year, the sun cast shadows at different angles depending on the latitude. So he calculated from the change in angles of the shadows, he believed the sun to be 42 miles in diameter and 4,400 miles high. He never considered once that the hypothesis of a spherical earth explains the same ph phenomena only better as Eratosthenes had done in the third century BC in the very same city of Alexandria. Well, evidently there was a debate uh, because Cosmos gives us an account of debate that occurs in Alexandria between the proponents of the two views of, uh, of the earth. Evidently, Philoponus was not in attendance but Cosmos thought that his side had won. Addressing his mentor, Cosmos triumphantly reports uh, his account of the debate. And it is the truth I speak, O most God-beloved Father. Through the power of Christ, they, the round earthers, went away dumbfounded and sadly, sadly crestfallen, having been put to shame by our exposure of their fictions. Well, 
Cosmos has a parting shot at Philoponus. He tells him, if anyone doubts that adhering to a round earth does not lead to abandoning the doctrine of creation, then look no further than to the philosophers themselves. He says, for among the philosophers, whether of old or of late times, who are at most celebrated among the pagans, and who have been of the opinion that the heaven is a sphere, has he found one who affirms that it is not everlasting? It is a fact that all of them have declared it to be eternal. Well, <clears throat> Philoponus does not take this lying down. So Philoponus responds to Cosmos with his first distinctly Christian book in which it's a commentary on the Genesis account. Uh, and the name of the book is On the Creation of the World. Now, in this book, Philoponus has two aims. First, to demonstrate the compatibility of Genesis with the current science. And I use science there, put it in quotation marks, because science as a modern discipline does not exist at that time. Uh, it, we, it, it's, it's, uh, we, we call them natural philosophers uh, because that is what, who they were. They were philosophers who engaged in the study of nature. But they didn't study, they didn't have the scientific uh, method down pat like we see in the modern era. Well, what Philoponus wanted to demonstrate was that the doctrine of creation as presented by Moses is compatible with the phenomena as understood by the natural philosophers. He wanted to provide an explanation of creation that was reasonable both to educated Christians and to any pagan who might be considering Christianity. And second, he wanted to provide an alternative to Cosmos's position. He considered Cosmos's arguments to be the brain of an ignorant ass. And he was concerned that Cosmos's views might be received as the standard Christian position. He has advice for Cosmos and those like him. Man, just be quiet, please. He says, quote, if some people cannot understand what has been said because of a lack of training, let silence cover their ignorance. Now, Cosmos and Philoponus may live in the same city at the same time but they are worlds apart. So Philoponus responds to Cosmos' handling of the biblical text to Cosmos' claim that the Bible teaches that the world is tent-shaped. Philoponus points out that such statements are metaphorical and descriptive of the phenomena, and at any rate, they're not intended to teach astronomy. And to the claim that the Bible teaches that the sun returns via the north. Philoponus, in his close handling of the text in Ecclesiastes, shows that not only does the sun not travel behind a northern mountain range, neither does the Bible teach such a thing. And so uh, Philoponus denounces Cosmos not only for being a bad astronomer, but also he's a bad exegete. And then <clears throat> Philoponus explained the purpose of the creation account in Genesis. Philoponus said, Moses is teaching us about God. He's not giving us a scientific explanation. And he says, quote, let no one demand that the work of Moses was intended to be a technical account of nature for those who came later. Since then, Moses wants to instill the knowledge of God into completely unguided souls that know hardly anything of the phenomena. He leads them from the well-known and the familiar up to the conception of an invisible God. In other words, Philoponus says, Moses is writing to a general audience. Well, quite a debate. I've got a few con concluding thoughts and then I'm done. First, 
Again, I, as students of mine who've taken my creation and creationism class know that I harp on this point constantly. Distinguish between creation and creationism. Philoponus considered Cosmos ignorant. Cosmos saw Philoponus as a traitor. But the disagreement between the two was over which approach was more faithful to their mutual Christian belief. Philoponus and Cosmos engaged with the prevailing views of their day. And let's face it, now for the most part, their attempts seem rather quaint. Keep this in mind. When, whether one is trying to reconcile Genesis with the Big Bang hypothesis or if you're trying to make a case for the young earth using the appearance of age hypothesis. Second, Philoponus wins, Cosmos loses. Not just in the obvious sense that Philoponus is right, but in the sense that his position becomes the prevailing view. Contrary to the claims of some, Cosmos's position was never seriously taken by the church. Uh, his objections concerning the spheres were considered by the church to have been answered by Philoponus. The medieval church's acceptance of the Ptolemaic system demonstrates this. The Venerable Bede, Roger Bacon, Thomas Aquinas, all of the medieval scholars believe that the earth is round. Even to this day, you see some yahoos, who will, people who should know better, would argue that uh, the Catholic Church opposed Columbus uh, because they thought that the, the earth was flat. No, they thought Columbus was a bad mathematician. You see, Columbus, as he was trying to sell the trip uh, to Isabella and Ferdinand, he argued that the earth was only 8,000 miles around and that one should be able to travel from Spain and arrive at Asia just a, thousand, a couple of thousand miles. The Catholic mathematician said, you're crazy. It's not 8,000 miles. It's more like 24 or 25,000 miles. And in fact, from Spain to Asia is 13,000 miles. What neither group knew is that there's the little things called North and South America. Good for Columbus that they were there. Otherwise, he would never would have made it. So it wasn't a debate over whether or not the earth was flat or round. It was over the size of the earth. So, in fact, what I would argue is, is that Philoponus wins too well. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, the church eventually baptizes the Ptolemaic system and incorporates it into accepted belief. Ptolemy's model, Ptolemy's model becomes so entrenched that when Galileo advocates the Copernican model a thousand years later, the Roman church perceives it as a threat. And once again, this demonstrates the importance of distinguishing between a doctrine and apologetic. Third, Cosmos shows that sometimes it's possible to be right in principle but wrong about the question at hand. I mean, he was right about his overall rejection of the Aristotelian Ptolemaic worldview. But he was obviously wrong about the particular issue at hand, whether or not the earth is round. And it was Cosmos who decided to make the shape of the earth a hill on which to die, and die he did. Today, proponents of the, well, the warfare metaphor who want to say that there is a conflict between Christianity and science point to Cosmos and they have a field day with him. Philoponus takes a different approach. 
He remains committed to the distinctives of a Christian doctrine of creation while accepting as reasonable the overall findings of the natural philosophers of his day. Then, operating within the academic community and engaging with the philosophers, Philoponus challenged that which was antithetical to the Christian faith. In so doing, he intended to present a reasonable faith <clears throat> and provide a benefit to natural philosophy. And most historians of science consider him to have been very successful. Fourth, do Cosmos's criticisms of Philoponus have merit? To a certain extent, maybe, yes. Because Philoponus does accept many of the errant theories of his day. To a certain degree, Cosmos was right in warning about too quickly embracing the current findings of the natural sciences and too readily accepting the worldviews that's guiding their conclusions. After all, even though Philoponus rejects many of the fundamental tenets of Aristotle's physics, for the most part, he accepts the Ptolemaic cosmology upon which it was based. Cosmos committed, was committed to a universe created in time, no matter where he thought it was going to take him logically. His advocacy of a flat earth seemed absurd to his contemporaries, and it seems even more ridiculous to us today except for a few NBA players. But the pagans declared that a round earth is an eternal earth and Cosmos found their arguments convincing enough that he determined never to accept a spherical world. Let's just remember how wrong the pagans were in Cosmos' day. They were right about the shape of the earth, not much else. A round earth does not require a geocentric round universe and it certainly doesn't prove an eternal one. Creationists today need to be careful not to make the same mistake. So fifth, Philoponus and not Cosmos provides us with a better model. History demonstrates that it is Philoponus and not Cosmos who uh, gives a better model for the Christian who's endeavoring to inter interact with science. By engagement, Philoponus was able to change things. It was Philoponus who interacted with the Aristotelians on their own terms. And no small part of his success came from his ability to demonstrate the internal contradictions of the Aristotelian Ptolemaic paradigm. Therefore, it was Philoponus who chips away at the foundations of Aristotelian physics. And it's Philoponus who sets in motion the, the eventual collapse of the entire Ptolemaic cosmology. And it was Philoponus, not Cosmos, who provided the key concepts, namely that of impetus and unified dynamics that enabled the progress of scientific thought. In fact, I would argue that Philoponus's insights leads to a genuine advances in the field of science, and this is what makes Philoponus scientifically significant. In the realm of physics, he moved the ball forward. So creationists of all stripes and intelligent design proponents want to be taken seriously by the broader scientific uh, community. Philoponus shows how this can be done. Whether or not creationists or intelligent design proponents can make similar contributions will play a major part in determining their acceptance by the broader scientific community. So how do we conclude? I would argue that we should pay attention to Cosmos's theological concerns, but we should follow Philoponus's example. Thank you very much. 
Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We cover your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.